there's a story that I'm told where you were wearing a very tiny yellow bathing suit in Copacabana Beach. <laughs> and then and then shortly after that, you were robbed at knife point. Yeah, I've led a full life, Adam, you know, and I've been to a lot of places. And, you know, fashion in Europe is not what it is in the States, I guess, you know. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Conversations. This is Adam Ross, your host, and I want to thank you for joining me. Every so often, we meet someone who forever alters the course of our life. Today's episode is with Andrew Reese, who I met back in 2018. Andrew was born in Northern Ireland and was adopted at a young age and spent his childhood growing up in Russia, Hungary, and Spain. His family eventually moved back to England, where he joined the army at age 16. And after a couple of years in the English army, he completed school and began coaching kids sports and focused on personal training. Andrew's continued growth led him to move to Switzerland to earn his personal fitness, health, and nutrition degree. And of note, these classes were taught in German which Andrew had to learn in parallel to his classes. Andrew caught his first break when he applied for a personal training position with a facility associated with the Swiss Olympic organization. And it was here that Andrew grew his skills, learned how to get people to believe in themselves and to do things they never thought were possible. He talks about the impact he had on athlete training for the Paralympics and the impact his athletes had on him. And in 2016, Andrew and his wife moved from Switzerland to Michigan, where Andrew was looking for ways to implement the skills he learned as a personal trainer and coach. About one year later, he launches his personal training business called Urban Gym. It started with Andrew driving a trailer, literally a trailer, packed with gym equipment and parking it next to athletic fields where he would conduct weekly drop-in fitness classes. Now, eventually, he converted his garage to a gym, and in a short time, he became one of the busiest trainers in the Detroit area. And this is how we met. Since 2018, I've spent two to three hours a week working out with Andrew. Andrew's not your ordinary personal trainer who tells you what to do and then watches you struggle trying to do it. As you'll hear in this interview, Andrew brings much more than simply his advanced fitness knowledge to these workouts. His experience from traveling the world, working in various European countries, and being on his own journey of personal growth really brings a unique dynamic that I've never seen before in a personal trainer or fitness instructor. And this is a special conversation where Andrew talks about that journey through life. And something that he said, which has stuck with me in my mind, is this, and this is Andrew speaking here. He said, at age 50, I am halfway. I imagine the best is yet to come. 
I have a plan of how to keep achieving. The person I was is not forgotten, but the person I aspire to be is something else completely. And while Andrew has significantly improved my fitness over the years, our greatest interactions have been the conversations we've had before and after our workout sessions. And I assure you that this conversation does not disappoint. So I encourage you to set some time aside, turn up the volume, and listen to this wonderful conversation with the founder of Urban Gym and my good friend, Andrew Reese. All right, welcome to the show. Andrew, is it Reese? It's Reese. Reese. Almost, we're almost like with a Z at the uh-huh. end. Excellent. You know, because as you know, my my son's name is Reese, so I, I never yeah. forget your last name. But I guess it's Reese. I should say it a little differently. I recognised it straight away because my parents they adopted me. They're actually my father's from Wales, so I immediately recognised your son's name. You know, so there are there are kids in Wales who are actually called Reese Reese. You know, that's right. They would. You know, it's quite a mouthful. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So. I want to thank you for joining me. I've been waiting a long time to have this conversation. You know, most of the time when we get to talk, it's 10 minutes before you're killing me in a workout or in the middle of a workout or 10 mm-hmm. minutes after a workout where I could barely stand anymore. So I've been really interested and looking forward to being able to, to speak to you and really dive into your background here. And, you know, you've had such an influence on me. You've had an influence on many of my friends and my family as well and the community that I live in. So I thought we'd start off with something, maybe a little curveball here. I don't know when the last time you've thought about this, but there's a story that I'm told where you were wearing a very tiny yellow bathing suit in Copacabana Beach. <laughs> and then and then shortly after that, you were robbed at knife point. Yeah, I've led a full life, Adam, you know, and I've been to a lot of places. And, you know, fashion in Europe is not what it is in the States, I guess. You know, <laughs> I think we're exposed to big fashion brands that you don't you don't see so much here in the States, you know. I mean, you're talking also about a time that was uh, nearly 20 years ago, mm-hmm. but um, you're talking about a time in my life when I was traveling a lot. So I would say I'm fairly nomadic. You know, that's probably a good way to um, describe my life. I think if any, if I think if I was to sit down and write a book about my life, I think a lot of people would be almost, yeah, maybe a little, not, not shocks, but they probably find a lot of interesting stories within a a biography of mine, you know, to know that I've been to so many places. I want to find out, were you robbed at knife point on the Copacabana beach? Yeah. So no, no, I was robbed. Well, I was robbed in the evening actually, (laughs) (laughs) but I was on the Copacabana strip. Uh But, um, you know, I've always been that guy that, um, that's never sort of looked in the other direction. Mm -hmm. We just arrived in Brazil. We'd, we'd had about, um, Eight hour, we arrived in the morning, had about eight hours sleep in the hotel and then went out to the restaurant in the evening or out to a restaurant in the evening. We were looking at a menu mm-hmm. and it was, yeah, not terribly late. There was 
there's quite a lot of people around. There's lots of cars flying up and down the strip. And then um, suddenly, yeah, out of nowhere, you know, these guys came up to us, you know, you know, the usual thing, you know, wanting to know if we got like a cigarette or something. Mm-hmm. And then and then they were attacking a friend of mine, the guy I was traveling with. And then I stepped in and that's when they all whipped out knives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so I had like four knives at my throat <laughs> with another guy rummaging through my pockets, you know, so. I think I was fairly fortunate, you know, but it's um, I think that's an everyday occurrence in Rio because uh, a concerned motorist took me down to the police station afterwards and they just said, you can be thankful you're alive. You that's know? right. Well, you're here now, so we'll presume that everything turned out all right with you. Now, yeah. clearly we hear an accent, right? You may yeah. not hear, we have an accent to you, I'm sure. I have an yeah. accent to you, but yeah, absolutely. you, you yeah. have an accent to most of our listeners here. So... Tell me a little about where you're from before uh, you came to the United States, kind of your childhood. I was born in Northern Ireland mm-hmm. and I was immediately put up for adoption. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, back in those days, you know, I can't really say what the background of that situation was completely, you know, but they were very difficult times in, um, in Ireland, that's for sure. You know, certainly also in a, in a religious sense. You know, I was really fortunate that I was sent to an, an adoption agency through the Catholic Church. And I was basically picked up by great, by some great people who I call my parents today. I mean, they've passed away now. Mm-hmm. And I spent the formative years of my life, actually, the first few years of my life traveling around. You know, I spent the first three years of my life living in Russia, Spain and Hungary because my father was working abroad. So it was quite an interesting time. You know, it was, you know, at three years old, I was on the front page of the times because I was probably one of the only children in the UK at that point that could speak Russian, Hmm. you know, and um, my mum said it was always a shame, you know, that when she took me to school, I always went up to the kids in the playground and just greeted them in with some kind of Russian phrase, you know, and the kids would just run away from me. Was that your first language? English. No, it was, I mean we were we were speaking we were speaking English at home, but uh-huh. uh, you know as a child I was just brought up. You know I went to Russian kindergarten. You know I don't know. It's it's strange to say, but it's it was also a formative part of my life really because I think there was also this preconceived notion of how Russia might be, and and whilst certainly whilst we were living there, you know we we didn't experience that at all. You know my parents have you know just wonderful memories of living in Russia. And the kindness and care that we received from everybody that we came into contact with. And I think that sort of set the tone, for, certainly set a tone for my life that, you know, I wasn't really willing to sort of put people into categories or put them into blocks, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's a racial block or whatever background they might have. You know, I was just kind of, you know, take people for what they are. And I think that was sort of bred into me from a very early time. You know, my parents often talked about those times abroad mm-hmm. in a really, really good way. You know, so I never, you know, if ever I saw any news, you know, we were talking about the Cold War, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this the is early, 1970s. Yeah, this is early 1970s. Soviet Union. Were you in Moscow area or? Yeah, we were in a place called Toliati. That's about 600 miles south of Moscow. And, um, so that's like being in Michigan, comparing it to New York City. It's about 600 yeah, miles it's a, or yeah, so. Yeah, it's a long way away, yeah. you know. But then there was, I mean, there was a lot of control, you know. I mean, my parents were being monitored, I don't know, by the, by the Justice Department the entire time. They had somebody following them the, the entire time. But it was just, 
you know, back then there was, a, I guess, a deep mistrust of Westerners, let's say. And I think anybody who hadn't been to the Soviet bloc at that time, there was a deep mistrust of them as well, you know. But certainly the regular people that we came into contact with, they were wonderful, you know. I haven't been back since. I would, I would certainly love to go back again. You know, I think that just maybe that moment in my life and the way it was described to me afterwards sort of set the tone for the rest of my life because I've done really a lot of traveling and not in the sense that I go on holiday somewhere. You know, I go to places and I live and work in those places. Mm -hmm. You know, I tend to embrace people culturally speaking and I take people at face value and I expect them to do the same with me, really. Do you think it was the fact that you had traveled, you were in multiple countries very young in your life that started shaping this idea of embracing culture and taking people face value? Or was it something that was taught to you while you were in these places? I mean, was it the, the actual travel well, itself? Or No, I think, you know, as, as, as certainly as I got older, you know, I, mm -hmm. you, you know, I spent the first few years in, in Russia. And then, you know, I can certainly remember being in Spain because my father was in Barcelona. So we went to stay in, we went to live in Barcelona for a little while. And I certainly remember just the warmth of the people, you know, that, you know, certainly in a cultural sense, right. you know, British people can often be perceived as, you know, sort of stiff and, you know, with no sense of humor and this, that and the other. There's a perception of every nationality, I guess. And I certainly think as a child, that's just not absorbed, you know, that people find a way to communicate with you. You know, I certainly wasn't Spanish speaking. You know, as I would go to school, for example, kids would just find a way to communicate with you. The teachers mm -hmm. would find a way to communicate with you, which was just, you know, I have sensational memories of that. You know, the effort that people put in without even being asked to do that. At what age, at what point in your life did you realize that you were living a little different life and a little different way than I would say, at least here in the United States, and most kids live, right? Most kids, the majority, they stay, they have, they're born, they, they're in the same house, same school district, you know, mm -hmm. parents are relatively in the same job. And yet, sounds like at a young age, you had already lived in three countries and had seen starting to understand uh, differences in cultures and languages at a very young age. When did you understand that, hey, this is different? You know, I think as a child, it was fun. And I think that's important. You know, when my parents talk about my life in Russia, there was always a fun component attached to it. There was never any, any talk of difficulty. There was this sort of fond memories, the same in Spain, you know, it's, you know, people are very, um, let's say relaxed. There was a fun component attached to that as well. And I remember, you know, once all the traveling had ended, even when I, you know, my father had been basically on the road for years and, you know, we took a long holiday and um, we came, we, we actually came to the States for the first time back in, this has to be 1970, 1975, 1976 was the first time I came to the States to visit my uncle. And I remember, you know, staying here and, you know, I would just go up to people expecting to play with them. Mm -hmm. expecting to have fun with them you know if you know back then you, you know you would have like um 
You know, I can remember that the holiday in motels, for example, you know, there was nothing like that in Europe. There was there were no motels with a with a swimming pool and stuff like that, you know, and mm -hmm. and it was just like everything was like a wonderland when I first arrived in America just for a long holiday, let's say. And I would just simply go up to kids. I was I was very relaxed in that sense. You know, there was I was there was no inhibitions or or fear on my side because I didn't have any preconceived notions about how Americans were or or how anybody was. You know, I just I was just there to have fun, basically. You know, we went to Nassau as well and was the same thing. You know, we stayed with my you know, my uncle had a place in uh, Nassau and we went to stay there for a month. And um, Nassau, and Bahamas. Yeah, in the Bahamas, okay. yeah. And I actually went to school there, you know, so I was invited to the school, was very relaxed, you know, and they said, listen, do you want to come to school for a month? Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, fine, no problem. Mm -hmm. you know? And it was just fantastic, you know. It was just like, it was just a fun, fun experience. And I, I always remember, you know, like this, all these little black kids running around in Nassau, you know, and it's, you know, they, it was the first time they'd really met somebody like me with this accent and and behaving the way I was behaving, you know, it was, it was something of a novelty for them. Again, it was just, you know, just fan fantastic, fantastic memories. And I guess that, you know, any chance I've ever had later on in life to then travel, I've really grabbed with both hands, you know, because I really think it's, you know, I think we've discussed this maybe from one or two, maybe one or two times, I think, you know, this, the importance of communication or the ability to communicate can't be undervalued, you know, and if you're able to learn that subconsciously as a child, this is, this is huge. I think we could both agree on that, you know, and it's certainly one thing I worry about with the, you know, the youth of today, you know, whether they're communicating enough, you know, I think that this, um, I think just the ability to express yourself in a relaxed setting or a social setting is so important. We're going to end up kind of jumping around a little here. But while we're on this topic, I want to ask, so you have three sons, you have three children, yeah. and they're immersed in American culture. They have devices, they have, you know, they watch Netflix, I'm sure. How do you or do you in teach them or show them similar types of experiences that you had growing up or at mm -hmm. least some of the principles of you know embracing culture taking people at face value or, or or the way you describe your childhood is it possible to impart this on our children in the current environment of social media and of texting as you know and and a lot more isolation I think it's absolutely possible, Adam, you know, there's certainly, certainly the people I, so I'm very particular about who I surround myself with, for example. And certainly the people that I do surround myself with, I think they all have the ability to, to teach their children. I think there's a lot more to be taught, but it's just whether it's really a matter of, are we making enough time to do this? Mm. You know, this, you talk about the current environment, you know, you know, I was listening to Andrew Cuomo this morning, you know, and he was saying he was saying this is the first time in years that he's had the opportunity just to sit down and talk with his children. You know, everything else for the last years has just been superficial. And just imagine, you know, we lived we could just take a moment to reevaluate our lives 
and just say we need to slow down a little we need to slow down a little and it's not a bad thing to slow down i actually saw something that you'd posted i didn't actually read it mm-hmm. because i'm already familiar with it about how many hours get worked in germany and how mm-hmm how productive they are. And this is absolutely true. This notion that we need to work 60 hours a week or 70 hours a week as if it's like a, as if we need a medal for that. Mm -hmm. You know, my experience of working in a variety of countries is it's far more important to work efficiently and then have this important social time with your family. And this is certainly something I've picked up from the variety of countries that I have lived in over the years, that the social components of a family life it simply can't be undervalued. You know, what we can teach our children is something that just can't get taught in school. And it's certainly not going to get taught on a social media platform that's been controlled by some 18-year-old or 19-year-old or 20-year-old who's trying to instruct my child how to play Fortnite or something, you know. This is, this is not the way forward. So there's a lot of things I still try to instill you know, in family life is, you know, that we sit down to dinner mm-hmm. evenings and and we talk, you know, even outside of a time like this. I think there's times when, you know, it's great to go for a walk, go for a walk for an hour and a quarter, go for a walk for four miles and talk. And it's amazing. You know, it's, a, it's just amazing to hear children, how curious they are, you know, just as I was curious, just as you were curious. I mean, I have a son He's going to turn 11 this year. And, and some of the questions he has now are really, really deep. You know, it's, a, it's astonishing, you know, the, the things that we talk about. And I can see that, you know, with my, with my five-year-old and my, my soon-to-be seven-year-old, there is an interest there. And this interest needs addressing on our end. I think sometimes, you know, the pace of life is not just not conducive. That's interesting. We're speaking in uh, April 2020. And Mm -hmm. in the state of Michigan, we're in a shelter in place. So we're spending a lot of time at home and there are people, you know, obviously the economic impact here, but there's also something positive. I think that we may all be getting out of this and that revolves around what you just commented on with time, time kind of slows down now that we're all home. And we have the ability to, we still get to choose. We still have to choose it, but to have conversations, to spend time with our family. And I think in a way, it's a blessing in disguise. Well, I'm also like you, I'm fortunate that I work from home and I also make time for that. So the change, the change of gears for me was not that difficult when this stay at home was it enforced? I mean, I don't like to, I don't even like to use the word enforced. I think that's a ridiculous notion. It's just something we have to do, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just a moral obligation that we should be undertaking. But it's, you know, that feeling that I need to be there for my children is as important as my career is, as my wife is to me, as, mm-hmm. my, as my friends are to me. You know, as many times as possible, I walk to the school and, and I walk my kids home just so we can have like, 15, 20 minutes where we're just, you know, they're decompressing from their school day, for example, you know, and we can, you know, rather than pick them up in a vehicle and they just head Mm -hmm. straight home, we're home in two minutes. You know, why do we need to be home in two minutes? Let's just take a walk and spend 15 minutes on the way home and talk about something for 15 minutes. That 15 minutes is, 
can be a valuable 15 minutes. So it's really a case of maybe reevaluating how it is. I always say that time is the most important commodity that we all have. Yeah, absolutely. Right? You know, I'm not going to get time back. I'm, I'm 50 now, you know. I wish I was 30. <laughs> but those years aren't coming back, you know. And, it, you know, I really put the emphasis on time. And even that 15 minutes is so valuable to me. I can walk my kids home and then I can pick them up at 3.15 or 3.10 or whatever it is. And then I can be back here and I can be training somebody at 3.40. Yeah, you know, it sounds like you could build in these types of behaviors. And so often it's something that I fight and have to kind of force myself to make these decisions. I mean, they're easy decisions in the end, but, you know, do I go get in a car and pick up a child from school or do I walk and walk back with them and get that extra 15, 20 minutes? If you build that into your day, you build it into your routine and your decisions, you get that extra time without having to do much work for it. And uh, I think you're absolutely, absolutely right there. I, I wanted to skip around because when we first came into contact with one another, it was actually my wife, Danielle told me a few years back she she said yeah there's this guy who's showing up at the uh, local community center the sports field and he has a truck and he has an entire gym in his truck and he's conducting classes with people and you know the first time she told me it I didn't pay much attention I was, ah, that's interesting I mean it sounds like it may just last a, a class or two and, and, and that will be it but it turned out that you know one person turned into three, turned into nine. Next thing you know, you have a big following and people quickly understood, they appreciated that the type of training they were receiving was at a level and quality that they weren't getting anywhere else. And these are people, at least in this group, that were maybe 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old. And so these are people who were, they have years and years of experience working out with people and they found something in you that was different. You spoke to them somehow in a different way, figuratively and probably literally. And so let's jump a little into your background in how you first got exposed to the fitness world and Tell us a little about that course, because it didn't happen in the United States. It happened many years before you got here, right? That's right. You know, I, I really come from a different generation. I, it seems amazing to say that. I feel so young and I feel so capable. And to say that I come from a different generation is, is almost astonishing to me to say that. Certainly my ability, you know, my, the sport and athleticism and, and staying fit would, would just a, a completely different world once you know back in the 70s where there was no online training and there were no dvds even came in much later as an example and you know so i was exposed to sport i was exposed to athleticism you know so i was certainly very capable at school i was i had certain focuses not really in sporting excellence you know i, I never imagined myself you know, wanting to make the Olympic team for anything or mm -hmm. to be on a or to make it as a pro because I had other priorities in my life. But, you know, I realized that I had a lot to give a team, for example, you know, when a team was down and out, even losing, you know, I was really an integral part. I think sometimes I was even to be part of a team because I could bring a team up. 
mm-hmm. you know. And a good example of that is I was terrible at basketball mm-hmm. and I could never understand my high school gym teacher constantly picking me for the high school team. Mm-hmm. You know, years later, he actually said that, you, you know, he said, you bring another component to the team. He said that you can lift them, you know, when they don't want to go anymore, you know, when they're when their chins are down and they feel like it's all over, you know, you can just bring something else to the game, you know, and that's often why, you know, I was chosen, let's say. And I think that it certainly jumps a stage. There's a, there's a stage in my life that I haven't talked about yet. But when I was about 18, 19, I actually went back to education at the same school. So I was ancient mm-hmm. at that school. And I took up coaching kids sports at that age. So I was, I was uh, just going on 19 and I, I took up coaching children track and field. And we hadn't won anything for decades. You know, it was like an inter, inter-school championships and we hadn't won anything. And I took up coaching the boys and then suddenly we won. It was just like remarkable. It's just one of those achievements in my life that I'm so proud of. And it just came out of nowhere. You know, I was literally looking for kids who had never been exposed to sport ever, but I saw some potential in them simply because of their body type, for example. You know, so I saw some heavy kid who'd never thrown a hammer or a shot put or a javelin. You know, I said, listen, I am going to teach you how to throw a javelin. I'm going to teach you how to throw the shot or the hammer. You can do this. You are the heaviest kid I've seen. Mm -hmm. So let's do this, you know, and it's really... It's so fantastic, you know, when you can put a smile on a on a kid who's just a little bit younger than I was at that time. You know, if you can put a smile on their face, that had an enormous impact on the direction I was taking or the direction I certainly wanted to take in my life. So you went back to school and then were you coaching after school? Well, no, what happened was, is that, you know, so I was at school and I was completely... When I was about 12, I was completely fixated on joining the military, uh-huh. like an obsession with joining, joining the Marines. Mm-hmm. As soon as I had the opportunity, I was going to leave that school and do that. You know, I wasn't interested in taking exams. I just wanted to do the minimum. I mean, I don't want to give folks the wrong idea. You know, it, right. it's, I, think it's, I think it's fairly apparent, you know, that eventually I did well in the education sense you know I feel proud of what I've achieved in an educational sense I was just a late bloomer and I just had different priorities so the five basic exams that were were necessary to sit at school and and I just didn't sit the others and I just joined the army at 16 and yeah enjoyed the military life for a couple of years two and a half years in in what country was uh, this that was in England England so I was in like a, uh, I was in like a um, reconnaissance corps in England. And unfortunately, whilst I was young, I'd been hit by a car while I was on my bicycle. I'd suffered quite a head injury and nothing, nothing happened when I had that injury initially. But then um, a couple of years, years later, I started to develop um, epileptic fits. You know, I was such a useful uh, soldier mm-hmm. that they covered it up initially. Mm-hmm. And they just said, you know, we're, we're out on fields, you know, field manoeuvres. We're just going to forget about this. And then we were we were actually at um, a ceremony out on um, doing drills. And I suffered an epileptic attack there. And then it was all over for me. You know, I was just um, released on the medical grounds. I came out then and then went back into education. 
That's why there was this break, if you like. And I just basically chose then what it is I wanted to study. And I was a sensation. I just I was just lapping it up. I just I love to be a student again, you know. And did you start studying fitness at that age or was that something later on? No, that that came later. Mm -hmm. So I studied some programs with UK athletics Mm -hmm. early on, you know, because I was basically so proficient at all sports. It was easy for me to, you know, we were very multi sport oriented. You know, I could run, jump, I could do distance, I could sprint, all of that. And, you know, I just I was asked by the physical ed department within the school if I would be willing to take on the boys team, you know, because they knew my background. Mm -hmm. They knew I had a military background as well by that Mm -hmm. point. And they just said, listen, you know, the kids respond to you. You know, do you want to take this on? And I said, yeah, okay, let's let's give it a try, you know. And I just embraced that, you know, it was um, five days a week. You know, we'd all be in school and then we'd come out of school about 3.30. And then we'd literally spend three hours out on the um, athletics field and just have every kid in different areas on the field and the track. And I'd just be coaching that. It sounds insane, right? I mean, it's it's all so organized now. But back then you're talking about the late, you know, mid to late 80s and and things were just different. They They just weren't as organized as they are now. Sure, sure. So we're going to come back to kids and teenagers and athletics and training. And I want to first just touch on, you actually went to, you did schooling later on in personal training, and you did that the Swiss Academy of Fitness. Is that right? That's right, yeah. And that was... Yeah, and I did that in German. In German, yeah. So how did you... <laughs> First of all, how did that opportunity come about to go to Switzerland, to go to this school, to learn, to become an expert in personal training? And what was going through your mind that you chose to do it in German? There was only that opportunity to do it in German. So I learned German initially. And, you know, I was fairly adept to learning foreign languages. It didn't take me long to pick up German because I was already been exposed to foreign languages. I think there's some kind of science Mm -hmm. about the fact that if children are exposed to foreign languages at an early age, they tend to find it much easier later on in life. And and prior to living in uh, Switzerland, I've been living in Denmark for eight years, so which is also a Germanic speaking language. So there was a fair bit of not in a grammatical sense, but certainly in a vocabulary sense. There was some crossover from Danish to German. And I had had a fair bit of contact with Germans. I, had, I have actually worked in Germany, in Munich. So, yeah, for want of a better word, you know, to go and live in Switzerland. I had an opportunity to go and live in Switzerland. And I studied German. And then, you know, I decided, you know, it was really high time for me to really start um, traveling down the path that spoke to me, mm-hmm. which was, yeah, health and fitness is, is basically the way I prefer to describe it, you know. Certainly other things developed from that later on, but I certainly consider myself more a health and wellness expert above all. And I I was certainly trained that way initially, but I've been able to integrate other things into that. And then I actually embarked on a two-year education that was done in modules. I spent actually two years out of school, and then I was just working in a bar in the evenings in Switzerland. Eventually, I passed the exam. It took some time because I had, there was, you know, translating a lot of the uh, terminology just in my own mind and then re-explaining that. It was a very complicated process, probably one of the hardest things I ever did 
you know, but it's that's also something that shaped me as well. You know, I really persevered and and saw that through, you know, and I think it's something I'm very proud of today. There was nobody I knew at that time, certainly with the within the community I was living in, that would have ever entertained the idea of learning something or going on a course in a foreign language simply because that that was the only course available. You know, it sounds like that time in your life combined your bracing of different cultures and your kind of passion for physical fitness, mental fitness. It sounds like it brought it all together. And you worked in Switzerland for a while, right? Yeah, I was, I was working there as well. You know, I worked at a bar. I was working as a cook. I was working as a doorman. You know, I was doing a bunch of stuff. You know, again, it was a really valuable experience living in Switzerland. You know, I thoroughly enjoyed living there. I was fully integrated into Swiss culture, mm-hmm. you know, being a German speaker. And I think that's also reflected in their in, in the attitude of Swiss people towards me, you know, that I've actually made the effort to speak their mother tongue and to understand them. You know, I've always had that attitude, you know, that I feel like it's my responsibility to make things happen and not to let other people do the reverse, if you see what I mean. Yeah. You know, I don't want people handing me you know, a free ride, let's say, you know, I feel like I need to do the legwork and then, you know, we can work together towards a common goal, you know? So people consider you, the ones, you know, people in my community, my friends, my circle, they consider you a personal trainer, a strength coach, yet you once mentioned that your personal goal is to make as much impact as possible and change people's lives through thought and discussion. Yeah, so we get back to this idea of communication again. So I've always had to communicate with people. And I don't consider myself terribly eloquent. You know, my vocabulary, could I could probably expand on my vocabulary. But I certainly put what I have to good use. I try to make things simple and understandable for people. And I, and I really try to remain honest. It's something, you know, something that was bred into me as a young man. And when you learn a foreign language, when you go to live in other cultures, there's a certain element of respect on both sides. You know, I respect, you know, I'm grateful that people accept me within their culture, for example. And I know that people were always curious about me, you know, in the different countries that I've lived in, you know, the types of questions that they would be asking me. So I knew that there was, you know, a common interest, let's say, people want to learn. People want to learn about one another. And I think that, you know, over the decades, I think I've, ma- I've now managed, it's only really in the last 10 years that I sort of really managed to sort of put that into a package. And I really understand myself that, you know, I can't, I've got to use this thing. This is such a valuable asset, this ability to move towards a goal, to make the impact on people's lives that I want to have through communication and and my own thought process. So when I say I want to have an impact on people, I think a lot of people first assume that I want to have a physical impact on them. Mm -hmm. But what I'm really gunning for is I'm really looking to have like a a lifestyle impact on them. Mm -hmm. And I want to improve their lives on a more, let's say, holistic level as well. You know, certainly the physical impact is important. It's part of my job. But you know, I'm presented with so many problems. It's not problems, but opportunities. Let's, let me say opportunities. 
where people come to me, you know, for a physical workout, but they're simply not ready. Do you understand? Yes. And they might not be ready because they've had an argument with their wife or mm. the weather's terrible or their kids are just doing crazy things or something's happened at work. And then they come to me and they, they expect um, a solution to their physical needs. But I know immediately that they're not ready. So I have to prepare them mentally. Mm-hmm. And that is not going to happen in one training session. That's going to take time. And I think I'm in a fortunate position now is, is that the people that do train with me is that they now understand that they have to prepare themselves in a sort of more global nature mm-hmm. to actually come and train with me mm-hmm. because of the information that they've gleaned from me over the last, yeah, two, three years, for example. I sort of take my job or, or the experience that they have with me to another level. I want to see happy people and not just happy in front of me. I want them to be happy in their lives. I want them to be good people. You know, I want them to go out into society and make a, and make an impact on the people around them. You know, I can say, I can say hand on heart. It really doesn't matter if, you know, I could be training people from a whole variety of backgrounds, people who are extremely well-educated, some people who aren't very well-educated, some people who have different political ideologies, let's say, fiscally, you know, some people might be very well off and some might not be so well off, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, I keep it simple and I just feel like everybody can be improved, you know, and I think I think you understand this about me, you know, and it's, um, and I learn from my clients as well, you know, mm-hmm. so this is a two-way street. This is not just me talking to my clients and we often have like 10-minute discussions, you know this. Mm-hmm. And any moment I think that I've had an impact on you, for example, you know, some things that I might have said to you over the few years that I've known you, it's that moment that I'm most proud of. I, I, I couldn't care less what you can squat or what you could bench, you know, but if I can make you a better person, mm-hmm. it's not, you know, whether you can put more zeros in your bank account or, you know, I just, I just want you to feel like you're a better person, mm-hmm. you know, when you get up in the morning that you're making an impact in your life. And that really is the same for every single person that I come into contact with. And this is for children as well, you know, that the children that I train, I think they feel this. They feel like I want to make a difference for them. And because they're a little bit more primitive in nature, I think they understand it very, very quickly. Sometimes it's a little bit confusing for them. Maybe they're getting a mixed message. They might get a message from their parents that's telling them something otherwise. But I really, you know, I try to make them understand from the get-go that I really want to make a difference to them. And everybody's got to be on board with this message. Mm -hmm. We're going to do this together. Mm -hmm. And when we succeed with these things, Adam, it's those moments that I remember in my life. Nobody should be forgotten. And it's the people who were often forgotten that I pick up that I remember the most. It's not the best athletes that I've trained. And every, anybody can train a fantastic athlete, right? Mm. It's the people who can't do stuff that I remember the most. The people who are eager to do things, you know, it's, it's those people I remember the most. Yeah, I have many, many examples. And um, Do you have one specific one that you could share? And if not, you know, that, that's all right. I've, you know, I've dealt with um, handicapped people before. Mm-hmm. You know, I was really fortunate, actually, you know, after I finished studying. It was really tough for me to get a job in Switzerland as a fitness trainer. I just needed to get a job just to open the door, you know. But because I was um, a foreigner and my German wasn't 
fantastic and I was a little bit older. Mm-hmm. You know, the doors were getting closed. And there was this facility that was a- attached to the Swiss Olympic organization. Mm-hmm. And I never, ever perceived that I would get a chance to work there. And I just thought one day, you know, it was really close to where I was living. I was driving past there one day, you know, and I thought, you know what? I just thought it was like above my level. And, you know, I went in there. I was literally shaking when I went in there because I mm-hmm. just thought that this, this place is just way above me. And they gave me my first break. Mm-hmm. And I learned so much at that facility. And, of course, there was a lot of athletes there and there was um, handicapped athletes there, Paralympians. Mm-hmm. And I took it upon myself to train some of them as well, you know, because mm-hmm. as crazy as this may sound, is I thought that they weren't doing enough. Mm-hmm. They had their coaches. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, Paralympics is a relatively new development. You know, it's, I mean, I don't know when the first Paralympics was, was hosted. It's relatively new, right? Mm-hmm. And certainly back then, you know, I was watching a woman rolling around us, rolling around our facility looking for things to do. And I'd seen this for a few weeks and I just went up to her and I said, listen, you know, I'm really, would you like to do some training with me? You know, and we banded the idea around for a few weeks and then she eventually uh, started training and I had to figure everything out for her, you know, because she was wheelchair bound and she was actually on the Swiss table tennis team. She couldn't walk. She was, she was paralyzed from the waist down, you know, but I was, I really studied, you know, what is important for her, mm-hmm. you know, what's going to make a better table tennis player, you know, and we can go into that, but I'm not going to do that right now. You know, that was a moment when somebody who was just a little bit lost for things to do or how to train and wasn't really getting the right direction, we were able to connect and I was able to change something for her. That experience alone proved to me that I was capable of mm. of overcoming a lot of obstacles. Even if somebody was incapable of walking, there's always a way of achieving something new, making somebody better, enhancing their life, optimizing their life. It's interesting, right? When we're working out together and session comes to an end, we may have touched on some things. I may have told you about some pain I was having in my arm or something that wasn't feeling right. And then the next day or next session, I hear you took some time, you researched what may be going on in in my body and come up with solutions on let's try this. Maybe this will make it better. It sounds like that your curiosity combined with when you take curiosity, you combine it with kind of the mission to impact people right? In some kind of health, physical, mental, psychological, that's kind of a sweet spot for you in potentially how you're impacting people day to day. It's a combination of all of those things. And I want to ask you this because something you said stuck in my mind and you said at 50 years old, you're halfway, but yet you imagine the best is yet to come and that you have a plan on how to keep achieving. And you say the person that you were, right, is not Mm -hmm. forgotten, but the person I aspire to be is something else completely. Yeah, absolutely. I feel myself changing. And I often wonder in our current society is do we feel, are we spiritually connected to ourselves anymore? Because I feel like I am and I feel change within me. So 
you know, in a physical sense, I train myself in a certain way, but I feel like I'm growing at such a rapid rate. And, you know, I talked about bringing a package together, you know, I'm sort of developing this idea of how it is I want to, I want to make an impact. Mm -hmm. And I feel this developing speed very, very quickly at the moment. You know, maybe I'm a late bloomer, but I feel like, you know, it's, um, I mean, certainly within the last five years, I've, there's been a dramatic change in the way I, in the way I behave towards other people. So even within the last two years, Adam, I, you know, I see that, you know, there's things that I need to change. There's things I need to learn about in order to optimize the amount of impact that I'm going to have on other people. You know, I'm not trying to solve the problems of the world, but, you know, just around me, when I say around me, the people I come into contact with, if I can change them in a positive sense, then I feel like I've, I've made an impact. And maybe that they can pass that on to their children and we can change something there. Children change, can change quickly, right? Yeah. I think it has a domino effect. I'm in a constant state of learning. You know, we talk about this period of staying at home, you know. For me, it was just a a period of opportunity, you know, again, I've just been at home, I don't know, three, four weeks, you know, and again, I'm just, you know, hitting the books and learning, learning, learning. What is it? What, what can I do to enhance my impact on other people? You know, I've been trying to use this time as usefully as possible because I know that I'm not going to get this time again, or I'm not going to get this time, or I'm going to have to schedule this time in the future. So what is it I can do to make you know, an impact on people I'm talking to, you know, at the moment via telephone or just by text messaging. I feel like um, I'm developing in a more spiritual sense and not in like a religious sense, but spiritually. Mm -hmm. And my foundation is becoming very, very solid. I feel that with my children, for example. I feel like, you know, what is it I can do to enhance my parenting skills? This is something we just nobody ever taught us right it's just we are you know we can either decide to develop this conscious and i think we have to consciously develop this i think it's you know if you want to learn how to you know learn about something new in the medical field or i want to learn about something some new technology in the in the physical training field we have to sit down and learn about this we have to read books and, and whatnot. We have to experience this. And, and I try to do the same with, you know, my parenting skills, my husbanding skills, mm -hmm. for example, you know. Do you have anything, a specific example, let's say an area that you were working on, say, you know, I wanted to, you know, how do I become, you know, a better communicator, let's say, with my wife or how do I provide this for my kids in a certain way? Anything that comes to mind as far as a concrete example and one, two, or like a few things that you could provide in, in how you went about engaging in that and trying to improve in that area? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I have to be honest, you know, and I'm absolutely not proud of the fact that, you know, I do have a temper and I've always lived with this fact. I consider myself very calculated up to a point, but when I lose my temper, I tend to lose control a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this was often, not often a problem, but from time to time a problem, you know, was, was never anything physical, but very verbal. And I knew it was something, you know, was upsetting to me and it was totally irrational. 
and I've really looked into things like meditation and and this idea of how do we become calm? You know, why am I sweating the small things? How is it I can introduce a routine into my life that's going to make me more efficient throughout my day? And there are certain things that I found there needs to be some element of organization in my life for me to function properly as a friend, as a husband, as a father. And, you know, there's certain I think we've touched on this before, you know, this idea of peace and quiet in the morning. There's a certain way I like to start my day, for example, you know, with an element of meditation. I really am very, very careful about not allowing myself to be surrounded by negativity. Mm-hmm. And it might sound a bit harsh. I strip that out of my life now. Sure, yeah. And whereas once there was a time in my life when I would have kind of, yeah, you know, I'll live with that, you know, but I kind of, this comes back to this time thing. I simply haven't got time for this. You know, I want to be a builder. I'm not there to destroy things. You know, I think now I'm able to draw on experiences from the last, especially the last three decades. You know, what are the little things that I've done when I've been living in foreign countries? What are the little, you know, what are the obstacles I've overcome? And I've never really been able to formulate that properly until now. It might sound crazy, but I'm really sort of at the point where I can formulate all of this and put it into a package. I know that there's things that I need to do for myself to put myself in order before I can even begin to help other people. And I think this comes back to this, um, is life moving at such a fast pace that we don't feel ourselves anymore, that we're not in contact with our inner bodies anymore, you know? Yeah. Does that make some sense to you? Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of the outward anger that we have is almost more of a reflection of our own personal fears in a way. And it's how we express some of those things. And, and oftentimes to solve problems, like let's say, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm, I'm, very similar in, you know, having to wrestle with, let's say, a temper, but you need to identify what the temper is not, there's something underlying the temper, right? There's some frustration or some problem. And the way to reach that is usually through, you know, well, lots of ways, but meditation, stillness, quietness, reflection, finding out what it is that's really causing that temper, because it's not, right? You know, if I have a a nine-year-old who is doing something that that's getting me angry, I mean, come yeah. on, there, there's nothing in that behavior that is inherent for a forty-five-year-old no. adult to have to yell and scream, <laughs> right? The temper and the anger is really just a reflection of something. It's a stand-in for some something else in my life that I'm dealing with that I may not that's even what- know. You know, I try not to hide things anymore, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm very, I'm very, you know, I'm, you know, sometimes to the, to the detriment of other people and, you know, I'm not really, you know, I'm never trying to be mean, mean spirited, but something, sometimes I just need to get things off my chest mm-hmm. and I just need to tell people, listen, you're just going to have to accept this, how I feel about this situation, whatever situation that might be. 
you know, I don't want to be walking around with something with this pent up frustration yeah. for three, four hours or take it home. You know, I just want to say, you know, I would, you know, I've kind of learned to in the moment address those situations right there and then. And then almost at the same time is try and rationalize it to that person simultaneously, not to just leave it there, just to, to really sort of make them understand that if I am upset, then they have to understand the why, not that I'm just upset with what they said and what they're doing or how they're behaving just seems irrational to me. Yeah. So I certainly don't want to go to bed feeling bad. Yeah. You know, you know so I work a very varied schedule as well. My day doesn't just revolve about how I begin the day, but it also revolves around how I end my day. Mm-hmm. There's certain boxes that need ticking for me. Mm-hmm. And again, this gets back to this sort of harmonizing my spirituality. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to finish a late evening here or a late shift doing my work and then just go back inside and not talk to my wife, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, that just doesn't seem to make any goddamn sense at all. You know, she's there. She loves me. I love her. You know, so let's have a conversation and, Mm. you know, just open the book. You know, I want to know how she is. I want to know what kind of day she's had. Sometimes I think it annoys her, you know, that I want to know so much, you know, but it's, um, but I feel like, you know, it's, um, I feel like if I go to bed feeling that I care, then I wake up also feeling like I'm going to care about this coming day. Right. And that's a good place to be in. Yeah, it's it's almost like this idea of this stillness. You know, I, I think I told you about mm-hmm. this, a book I read by Ryan Holiday called Stillness is just, you know, we know all of these principles, but we often kind of put them on the back burner. And, and when we come back to them, they become very, very useful in life. I want to just jump a little and talk about kids uh, yeah. because you are someone who um so my kids have done some training and working out with you we've had many conversations about kids you coach sports for kids you you've been involved in the community here and you have a really i think successful experience as far as being able to engage in kids and you told you know we started off talking about your experience coaching let's say track and field uh, at a a young age in your life a younger age in your life but for people who have kids and I want to go two places with this on one hand I want to touch on just some of the differences in Europe and in the United States in particularly, I want to fo- ask about the craziness of youth sports here in the United States and trying to find the right balance mm-hmm. there. But before we do that, I want to first ask for people who have kids and want them to be engaged and want them to be able to train and get good at sports and get good at and, and improve their fitness. What are some high level principles, some high level rules or suggestions or advice that you have found that works for you as someone who appears to do very well with it? I think first and foremost, parents really have to assess, you know, I go back to this thing. It's, we start way, way, way too early with, let's say, immersing children in sports so early at a young age, you know, 
I think a lot of people forget this idea that children need to learn to move spontaneously initially. And we, we shouldn't be managing this situation. There's this whole, you must have heard this let them play. I think there is a let them play movement. And that's why I think my personal opinion is, you know, that's why, you know, it's so important to get kids out and just and basically just send them out and just let them create their own path initially, you know, and find out which way they are, which way they're going to migrate. You know, we often push our kids into certain sports, for example, that that might be appealing to us. But is our child going to respond to that sport? Maybe not. You know, it doesn't matter whether you were good at that sport or I was good at certain sports. It just might not be appealing to to our child. I certainly think that there is a time in an, in a child's life when we should start to take things a little bit more seriously. But then I think there needs to be a much, much deeper understanding of how to develop a child's progress over time. And it's this thing, certainly when parents and certainly organisations, they're not really looking at the big picture. They're sort of looking at the here and now, in my opinion. You know, I haven't actually looked at the statistics, but I keep hearing statistics about the the high dropout rates Mm -hmm. of children doing sports when they reach their teens is alarming, for example. I often wonder, is is it simply because we just push them too hard too early? Mm -hmm. You know, it just seems to be completely the, you know, my experience as, as me growing up as a child was completely the reverse. You know, I just started out just playing and then just immersed myself in sports when I started reaching 11, 12, 13, Mm -hmm. 14. And I had, you know, I had great success and so did my peers. But it seems to me, you know, we're really looking for early success, you know, and not looking for success. You want a child to peak later on when they're 15, 16, 17, 18. And of course, you also want to get them there uninjured, you know, certainly as a coach is a huge priority for me. I simply don't see any kind of plan. And I've gone a long way to develop my career along that path where I would certainly provide a plan for my own children. You know, I'm very careful to manage the commitments of my own children to sports. I mean, my ch- my own children participate only at a recreational level in sports at the moment. And I just feel like it's too early, you know? But I'm, I'm also in a fortunate position where I can, I can coach them, right? And not every parent can. An interesting thing happens. Certainly the teams of children that I coach at the moment are of mixed abilities. Mm-hmm. And this winter was probably, you know, I coached um, a soccer team, an indoor soccer team during the mm-hmm. winter. It was such a mix of kids. But the chemistry was really, really good was really good. Mm-hmm. It was a team of children that I was completely unfamiliar with, mm-hmm. completely. I'd, I'd never met any of them. And there was a few kids in there that had no athletic ability at all. And there were some kids that had been playing travel sports in a variety of sports for maybe three, four, five years, I don't know, mm-hmm. and um, obviously very talented. And, you know, my mission wasn't really to get Obviously, it's always nice to get a win, you know, and to have a great competitive or to compete in a game and not just be dominated in a game. But my mission was, is, was really, I had such little time with, you know, maybe two and a half months with these kids. My mission was to really get them to enjoy each other's company mm-hmm. even more 
and play together as a team and to enhance the experience for each individual team member. We had a kid on that team and he had zero athletic ability and he'll probably never have any athletic ability. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. You know, having known the kid a little while now, you know, I know that he has his talents lie elsewhere. But he's played soccer for, I think, seven years or his father told me like seven years or something like this, you know, at mm-hmm. recreational level. And for the first time, we were able to get him to score a goal. <laughs> it was an amazing moment, you know, that the team performed together mm-hmm. to help this child get the first goal of his career. It was a magical moment. It was a magical moment. And, yeah. and that makes a difference. That makes a difference. It doesn't just make a difference for that child, that that moment of success, that moment of happiness. But what it did for the other kids made them understand Mm. that we're together in this thing. That's right. It's like really any organization, whether it's a business, whether it's I'm thinking back and let's say a residency program that I was a part of and, and worked with. Anytime you develop this incredible culture, people do extraordinary things. You know, it makes me, it brings me back to when you have great leadership also, uh, right? Because oftentimes it's the leaders who put people in these positions. They don't necessarily, right, where they don't. They don't tell people what to do. They inspire them to do things. And it makes me think of uh, a story, whether it's true or not, is irrelevant because it's the point. You know, when JFK, when we were trying to early 1960s when the United States putting a man on the moon, JFK visited mm-hmm. NASA. I think I've told you the story before, but he visited NASA and he's, you know, getting the grand tour and the scientists are uh, showing him the rockets they're working on and the mathematics. Mm-hmm. And as he's walking down the hallway and he saw a guy, you know, mopping up the floor and JFK actually knew him by name. He said, you know, hey, John, what are you doing today for NASA? And he said, I'm helping put a man on the moon. <laughs> right. And it was that the organization was so inspired by this drive that JFK set for them. Right. He set such high expectations, uh, but it meant that everyone had to have a role. Everyone was going to have a piece of the success. And sure enough, right. They put a man on the moon. And I think, when organizations, when you get the parts together and they gel and you have a strong culture, then the sum becomes greater than the parts. And it sounds like that was your team. And, and doing that with kids is truly memorable. And those are the things that they remember, right, for the rest of their life. I mean, I remember my 12-year-old baseball team. Uh, what is such an incredible team. I remember everyone's face. I remember the games we played. Even the hot dogs we ate after the games with each other. I mean, it was great. <laughs> it is. And, I, you know, I really try to live. I, I think that's probably a, that's a great way of describing that, that story that you tell. That reflects a lot in, you know, the type of person that I am. You know, I could, I could have been that guy cleaning the floor. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, I find myself in a situation right now in a fortunate situation where, where I do lead people, where I want to lead people. I want to help people, but I was never, I was never always in that situation. That's, you know, it's a ladder, right? You know, and I've had to come up that ladder and, you know, I've always accepted my position in in life, let's say, 
I've never been the type of person to stay in that position, but you know, I've always been looking to develop myself. But when I'm at a place, I'm looking to learn, I'm looking to listen, I'm, I'm not, and I'm looking to be a part of something. And I think that's just some of the knowledge that I'm able to impart now, you know, certainly with the people that I come into contact with. And, so, you know, and that and I try not to forget it myself. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we think we're so clever. Right. But, I, you know, every week I'm learning something new. You know, I try to write down so much. But you know, and I do write a lot of things down and I try to research those things at a later date just to help develop myself. You know, you know, I told you that I'm halfway in my life, you know, I do aspire, you know, I have an aspiration to live to 100, you know, and I just feel like I have so much to give. You know, I've met some very, very inspiring senior citizens in my lifetime, Mm -hmm. you know, as a young man, you know, people who were born in like the late 1800s, and, you know, telling me about their lives in those times, and just you know, really magical stories, you know, people who grew up in in different world wars or, you know, during different, you know, famines or economic depressions. And, you know, I've taken on, I remember all of these stories. And that's why I say, you know, I am looking forward to the time when my mission is to maintain the amount of energy that I have Mm -hmm. today for the next decade and the following decade and the following decade. I just want to, I want to kind of manage my body to allow me to make an impact, to keep making an impact on people in my life. And it might be that I'm 85 years old one day and I'm still doing, and I'm still doing this, you know, to some extent, but why not? Nobody drew a line and said, you have to stop here. That's right. You know, that's right. The race isn't over. So, we just have a few minutes left. I, we're going to wrap up. I have a couple questions. These are just, you know, kind of call them rapid fire. You don't have to answer. They're not about answering them quickly, but I have a bunch and we'll see how many we could get through in the next couple minutes. So knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your 30-year-old self? I wish, I, you know, is to really focus more on what is important in life and not the material things. You know, I think at 30, I was was still materialistic. Mm. Materialism um, doesn't resonate well with me these days. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Tell me something that you believe to be true. This is a hard one. So if you can't come up with anything, don't worry. Tell me something that you believe to be true that almost nobody agrees with you. Okay, so I'm really on a mission to inform people that they need to get themselves better. Mm Mm-hmm in a health sense. I think that uh, people's attitudes towards their health is, is broken. And it's a very, very difficult fix. And I think there's a lot of obstacles in my way in an institutional sense. And I think that's something that's been bred into us over decades. And I think it's something that's going to take, um, I don't know whether it's going to be solved in my lifetime. Yeah. But you know, really going against certainly theories about, you know, nutrition and health and stuff like this. You know, in a preventative sense, selling prevention is tough, Adam, you know? Yeah, it just gave me some ideas that I'll touch on right before we go here. Tell me, what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've made? And this could be energy, time, money, right? This could be anything, a book, a course. This is easy for me to answer. You know, 
I'm very, very particular about how I spend my time. Mm-hmm. And I am very, very routined. My focus is my family, you know. And I think I told you that it might sound corny, but they are very much my rock, you know. I couldn't do what I'm doing today without them. So they are my first priority. Because I know that if I have that one thing in my life, that solid thing in my life, I can, I can do anything. Mm. And I will be happy. I will be ultimately happy. I'm relatively easily pleased. You know, I don't have, you know, magnificent aspirations in my life. You know, I'm, I'm here to make an impact. When it comes to, you know, you talk about studying, for example, you, you quickly mentioned studying as an example. You know, for example, my meeting Rally, my wife, she really helped to settle me down and to really put me on the path that I'm on today. And I think that's something that I've only realized relatively recently, you know, that she really that's or I've been able to coin it like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think before that, you know, I was I was in rough seas without a compass, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I would say all of us, all of us uh, (laughs) have been put in our place by strong women in our lives. You know, her ability to settle me down, you know, that moment of realization that that this is the person I'm going to be with for the rest of my life enabled me to to set a course in my life and to study, for example, you know, to take the time to do things, to really start developing myself. You know, we met late on in life, you know, so I'd spend a long time in rough seas. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way you know <laughs> but that's okay you know i'm yeah. I'm, at, I'm at ease with that you that's know right. that's right it's, uh, uh, it turned out all right so far huh yeah so far it's so yeah. good no. so i think this is a good place to stop and when you were just talking i was thinking about i think we're gonna have to do a part two and we spoke on in this one a lot about kind of your background and your philosophies and how your training philosophy could really it's the right all the seeds that that were planted that grew into who you are today and how you impart your philosophy on others and i think what we have to do is for part two if you're open to it of course is to Absolutely. kind of dig into the actual fitness component and i know one thing that you love is nutrition food, maybe dive a little more into self-reflection and meditation and motivation, how you go about scheduling your day, how suggestions that you would recommend for other people. And, and what we'll do is we'll, we'll schedule a part two, because I think I didn't get enough of you yet today. So we're going we're gonna to do a, a part two here. And I think for now, what we'll do is we'll wrap up. And is there just for for the audience that is local, you know, Andrew runs uh, Urban Gym. Is there any place that they could find you or refer them to? Do you, do you have you still do the Facebook page or is it just? Yeah, we just you know, the, you know, most people contact me through Facebook. You yeah. know, and we, you know, we haven't been in the states that long. Yeah, and things have been traveling, you know, very very quickly. And you know, I'm certainly at a stage in my life when we're developing. Up until now, I've been working in my business rather sure. than my business. You know, we've talked about that before. Yeah. And, you know, that's certainly an aspect of my life that, um, you know, things like websites 
and blogs and vlogs and all this kind of stuff. That's certainly an element of my business that I want to develop in the future. But again, it's, it's, it's very impact oriented. You know, Adam, I'm very fortunate. I have a great group of, I currently have a great group of clients. I know I'm making a difference with them. I even have people just reaching out to me for advice from time to time. And they just want, they just also need some advice. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I can spend, you know, an, an hour scripting an email to them just for them to say thank you, you know, thank, thanks for that. You know, it's rewarding, right? You know, you've, I've, taken an hour, I've taken an hour out of my day just to help somebody. I might not have the time to deliver more than that, but at least it's in keeping with my mentality. It's in keeping with my philosophy, you know, that nobody gets kind of left behind, you know. And again, that's just something that, that's been ingrained into me over my lifetime. So, you know, I'm sure that um, Urban Gym will certainly see some developments over the coming years, certainly in a social media setting. But right now, it's uh, my my focus is very much on physically training people on, uh, mm -hmm. on a one to one basis. Mm -hmm. And you know, one thing I am very very keen to develop is developing my youth training. You know, but again, that goes we we kind of sort of getting into part two, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, about how we should develop yeah. children. Yeah. You know, actually, that sounds like that may be a part three. <laughs> yeah. So all right, well, hey. I got to thank you for sharing your stories today and uh, giving us your time. I think this was uh, incredibly insightful. I learned a ton and I think we just hit the tip of the iceberg here. So, so thank you again for your time and I'm looking forward to circling back with you and, and digging in even deeper. So thank you. Yeah. Likewise, Adam, it was a pleasure. And you're, uh, you're also one of uh, the inspirational characters in my life. I consider myself fortunate, you know, to have met you. You know, this thing sort of swings both ways. Mm. You know, I've learned a lot over the short span of time that we've known one another. So, um, yeah, so you have my eternal thanks. Oh, that <laughs> mean, it means more than you know. Thank you. Thank you for that, Andrew. All right, we'll wrap it up. And until next time. Okay. Take care, Adam. Thanks. Hey guys, this is Adam. Thanks again for listening. If you liked this episode, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast and leave a review. Every positive review helps. Also, remember to subscribe to the podcast so you automatically get episodes downloaded to your podcast library. Please send any questions or feedback to the email conversations at roshreview.com. If there's someone you have in mind who you'd like for me to have a conversation with, please let me know. Don't forget to check out the Rosh blog at roshreview.com backslash blog for more excellent content. And if you are a student, a PA, nurse practitioner, or doctor who is in a training program or residency or has an upcoming exam, take a look at roshreview.com and sign up for a free trial. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you at the next episode. So long.